0: we come back to the sermon on the mount and uh, for the second time we will be looking at that section there in Matthew 7 21 to 29 Matthew 7 verse 21 to 29 i will read it in your hearing this is the word of god Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. When the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may it please him to add his blessing to the reading and the preaching that we now we'll be listening to shortly. Perhaps let's just ask God for help once more. Oh Lord, we bow before you as those who recognise that this is not a mere book of literature that we are coming to, that we can wrap around our mind using uh, intellectual muscles. This is your holy word. And unless you unplug our ears, unless you remove the scale from our eyes, unless you change our hearts from being the stony hearts that they are, we are about to invest the next 45 minutes in futility. O Lord, in the wake, in the light of the fact that we need your word more than our necessary bread. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We please pray. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your law. Please bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. Help me to be effective and efficient. Kindly grant that. I would uh, be protected from error, that I would not mislead your children, that I would rightly divide the word of truth, that your children would look look beyond me and delight in hearing your voice, for your sheep hear your voice. And help us all, O Lord, to demonstrate that we have heard you by keeping your word. Please continue to be with our brethren in Ruiru, even as they gather. In not so long, grant them safety if they are still on the road traveling to that place. We please ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, this is part two of a warning against unconscious, unconscious in quotes, hypocrisy and self deception. Perhaps you remember those days when you wrote out that composition. And you read it and reread it, and you were done 15 minutes before the others were done. In fact, you had even asked for more answer sheets. And then you handed in your composition, and when it came back from the teacher, it was a bleeding composition. It was full of circles, double underline, uh, inverted V's saying you've missed out on things, spelling mistakes. the the summarized version of the story was you had an F in a composition you thought you were going to ace, or exams, and I sadly had situations like that where you read and read and read and think I've got this. And you show up for the exam, and the first question, I still remember this in college, first question was justify industrial strikes 30 marks, and I was thinking, no one justifies a strike. Surely how can you write for 30 marks a justification for industrial action? But the teacher was very wise. He wanted us to learn how to, to think, and that, that, that caught me, oh, maybe it's at your workplace, your general manager, your team leader, your CEO perhaps, Uh, has given you an opportunity to make a presentation for where your department is going next year. And you show up prepared with your PowerPoint and you start presenting to the client perhaps. (laughs) And the first question makes you want to say time out. Can I go back and prepare again? Or a question in an interview that you really prepared for that just makes you realize you weren't prepared. These things do happen. And uh, thankfully, in a lot of the circumstances where they happen to us, we have an opportunity to make up for the mistakes, for the gaps, for our failures with regards to not preparing well For them. You may be able to repeat an exam. You may be able to apply again for a job and do better in the next interview when you are told sell to us this pen and we don't like it. And that's the interview. Or when you are told this is Eskimo land and the temperature is minus 21, sell to us ice cream at the interview and you don't know what to tell the interview panel. But the next interview you are now more prepared to sell ice to the Eskimo, but what we are dealing with here in Matthew 7:21 to 23 is an exam that does not provide for receipts, for retakes, for you to do them again. And so we must ensure that on exam day, ours is not a foundation of sand. Ours is a foundation that is strong. Indeed, the rock of all ages. During this exam, there will be no receipt. There are surely many solemn things that have been uttered in scripture. But these words in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, are most solemn. And they have not been uttered by a mere man, even a legitimate man who is preaching on behalf, speaking on the behalf of the Lord. These are not words, and we praise the Lord, and we respect the apostles. These are not words of an apostle. These are not words of a Puritan preacher. And the words of the apostle are indeed the words of our Lord. But what I'm saying are these are the direct words coming from the very lips of our Lord. Last week we saw how the Lord stated a necessity in verse 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He stated a necessity for entering the kingdom of heaven. He said, the only person, he said and continues to say, the only person who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we saw there is A kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. And what is in view here is a kingdom of glory with regards to the last day on the day of judgment. The only person who will enter the kingdom of God's glory is the one who is doing the will of God. Who in addition to professing, confessing, lord lord is expressing by their behavior the fact that they are doing the will of god this is not a call to flawless performance this is not a call to perfectionism this is a call to a surrendered life a life that surrenders itself to the claims of christ so that from the heart it truly desires that the lord jesus christ would reign over it and this is a life that seeks to order its activities around the will of god such a person would be one who has subjected his or her life to god's authority And the inclination, the bent of such a person's life in their mind and in their constant behavior is to honor God in all things. To do the will of God means that you aim to both internally and externally be conformed to the holy image of god it also means doing the will of god also means that when you fall short of it you are grieved you are not indifferent when you sin you are not indifferent to the fact that you have not attained unto the standard of god's will yes you know there was effort sincere effort applied But the fact that you have not achieved that high standard should grieve our hearts. Because you dislike those things that displease God. To do the will of God is to to truly seek in your thoughts, in your affections, to seek by your actions... What is regulated by the word of God? Not sinless perfection, but a sincere pursuit of the will of God. It is not forced obedience, but one that is motivated by love. It is not just external compliance with a divine command, but as Ephesians chapter 6, and verse 6 would tell us it is that which is described as doing the will of God from the heart. There we read, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, verse 6, not by way of eye service, as people please us, but as servants of Christ's doing. The will of God from the heart. Without this, without this, one is not a Christian. It is as simple as that. The absence of this expression of faith makes empty any profession of faith. No matter how passionate, how zealous how filled with religious activity such an expression of, such a, such a profession of faith is. The Lord has said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who says, but he who does. This is the Lord's stated irreducible meaning. The Lord's stated necessity for entering heaven. heaven. Do not just profess, also express your faith by what you do. Then the Lord in verse 23, 22 and 23, gives a prophecy, a shocking prophecy. He says that on that day many would come to him on the day of judgment and they would be deceived. And so in the sermon today, I'm asking, how is it that many will come before the Lord on that day of judgment utterly, totally self deceived? The Lord makes it clear that it is not just a possibility that one can be thus deceived, but it is a reality that will occur. The Lord says that it's not just a few who would be self-deceived in this way, but many will be the number who will be self-deceived. And it is not just those who are immature, or ungifted, who would be these self deceived people? But we see the Lord saying that these would be a people who outwardly appear to be following the Lord
1: from afar, a people who are
0: orthodox in their profession. They are zealous in their profession. They are even highly gifted in the performance of spiritual activities. These self-deceived people are not liberals. They are not atheists. They believe in the existence of God. They have heard the gospel. They have heard about Jesus Christ. And the truth that Jesus Christ came into this world makes sense to them. They even call him Lord.
1: They do many works
0: in his name. What could cause such terrible delusion? What could bring about this terrible state of unconscious hypocrisy. Dear brothers and sisters, hopefully we have put the proper price down on our souls. That we deeply value our souls. And that we are going this afternoon to strive to be attentive and in our evaluation of this truth as we turn through various passages of Scripture to seek to answer this question. How can this be? That out of a sober concern for our eternal well-being, we will listen keenly this afternoon and strive to apply God's truth to our hearts. Because the physician of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, is here announcing that there is an outbreak of a terrible disease. There is a pandemic, the physician of our soul says. Do you remember the onset of COVID-19? How we wanted to be keen to hear, so how does it spread? How do we protect ourselves? What should we do? And we washed off the fingerprints from our hands. Scrubbed off those fingerprints. They're still trying to grow. For some of you during the voting exercise, the Kimskit did not know who you are. It is, the Lord is saying there is a disease. And this disease attacks a particular kind of people. It attacks those who profess to have faith in Jesus Christ. This is not a disease that heathens have. This is not a sickness that atheists have. This is a disease that attacks those who have heard the gospel. Those who see the reasonableness of the gospel. Those who even profess to believe in it. And actually are even active in ministry. From a place of even high gifts, such people are being here presented with a warning. How can we avoid this spiritual deception? How can we detect it if it is already there in our systems and we are suffering from unconscious hypocrisy? The scriptures warn us severally not to be deceived. Jeremiah 37 and verse 9, the scriptures say, Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves. Matthew 24 and verse 4, See that no one Leads you astray. Ephesians 5 verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. In Galatians 6 we are told do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. So scripture is abundantly alive to the fact that there are deceivers. And at times we can deceive ourselves. Have you ever been conned? It's a very painful thing when somebody cons you. Now imagine you conning yourself. Just going out of your way to decide, I'm going to play myself. I'm going to, I'm going to con myself. The Lord is saying, please don't con yourself. And James would say, do not deceive, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. If you say you have faith, but it's not seen in your works, you're deceiving yourself. You're conning yourself. I propose three reasons why somebody can be this self-received. And I have heavily relied on people whom the Lord has used previously uh, in this portion of Scripture. And I would just like to give credit there. Pastor Albert Martin and uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones and Sinclair Ferguson and even Brian Bogman. Have been helpful. Three propositions. A false doctrine of assurance of salvation tends to be at the heart of this sickness of self-deception. Because when, once, once we take seriously the reality of the fall of all men, the reality therefore the fact that the wrath of God the holy God abides on all men, then we usually will ask ourselves the question, what must I do to be saved? Isn't it? What must I do to be saved? I indeed see that Adam fell and we all fell in him. And therefore the thrice holy God is justified in condemning all of us to eternal damnation. But what must I do to be saved is usually a question we ask. And secondly, we would usually ask the question, how can I be sure that I am saved? How may I know? How may I be certain that I am saved? And in response to the first question, and these are, Two questions that are so important they make almost all other questions pale into insignificance in comparison to their weight. To be saved, we know the answer of Scripture, Acts 16:31: believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. We also know repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, as the answer to the question. What must I do to be saved? But then let's ask ourselves, what's the answer to the second question? How may I know that I am saved? How may I know that I have repented and believed? The Bible gives a clear answer to the first question. The answer to the first question is, bow down before the risen Lord and Savior. Trust in Him only. For He is redeeming mercy. He tells us that if we believe, we may know that we are His children. For as many as received Him, as many as believed in Him, they are given power. They are given power to be called the children of God. How may we know that we have
1: been born again? Two things.
0: One, by the promises of God's mercy being made real to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts. There's an inner witness that confer- of the Holy Spirit that concurs with the testimony of our spirits. Eric chapter verse. Chapter verse. Romans 8.16 Romans 8.16 would say the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there will be an inner witness. The Holy Spirit, by his mercy, revealing that we are indeed God's children. So that's one. Secondly, there will be the evidence of a changed life. The evidence of a changed life. Pastor Dominic has been preaching through First John and I feel perhaps it may be important that we look at some of the excerpts that he has taken us through as we have looked at 1st John. Because in 1st John, we are are told the author of 1st John makes it clear that his purpose in giving us the book of 1st John, he states this in chapter 5, verse 13, is that he wants us to be able to know that we are truly God's children. We are born again. How may we know then that we are born again? He presents in three expositions in the book of First John the same tests repeated severally. And it's like he's taking you up a spiral staircase. So, you'll keep seeing the same thing from different points of this spiral staircase. And he gives three tests three tests for us to know that we are born again. And these tests are seen in the evidence of a changed life. I'm trying to turn to that section so that I may just point out a few of these tests In 1 John 2, 3, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. So that would be an example of one of the tests. How do I know if I'm born again? The question is, do I keep his commandments? So that's a moral test. A moral test. A test of loving God is, do you keep his commandments? And then there's also the social test, the test of loving our brothers. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Then he goes on to say, whoever does not love abides in death. And then there is the test of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ to you? And, and he, John makes some very arresting statements on the importance of growth in doctrine. He says in chapter
1: 5 of First John,
0: Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the the testimony in, in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. He's saying belief in the truths that God testifies here is a sign that you are a Christian. If you don't, you are not. And so those three tests are there. The test of your belief, your test of obedience, and the test of loving the brethren. And there are a number of other tests of spiritual life that show there is evidence of change in our lives. We have gone through the Beatitudes, in, in Matthew chapter 5, we saw those eight practices, patterns of the life of a believer. Believer, a true believer, must be poor in spirit. A true believer must mourn. They must be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If those don't describe you, you cannot be a believer. Those are not things we do to become believers. Those are things that mark us out. As believers, a believer is pure in heart, is merciful, they, is a peacemaker. A believer is persecuted. Blessed are you when men persecute you. And we've gone through that as sermons. We also do know that Galatians chapter 5 presents a list of things that would show whether we are believers or not. And 2 Corinthians 5 would also do the same. Many will come to the judgment day saying, Lord, Lord, we have done this, we have done that, and they will be told, depart from me. I never knew you. One of the big reasons why this will happen to many is because they did not embrace the doctrine The biblical doctrine of assurance. This is how perhaps it plays out in their minds. They would say in their minds, perhaps the Bible says, He who believes is saved. I believe, therefore I am saved. And I arrive at this position without asking the question. Do I design in my life what God says will be the ultimate fruit of faith? Do I see in my life those things that the Lord says will be evidences of grace? For some people, sadly, when they are disturbed in their minds as to whether they are born again or not, because they are not seeing fruit that is in keeping with repentance, what do they do? They simply run to the verse, he that believes is saved. Then they make the conclusion that they are saved because they believe. Such people will pin all their assurance on a single text of Scripture, forgetting that truth in that text is, on, is a part of the whole uh, truth. It is not the only text in Scripture. The text is not what saves us. It is a savior who is presented in the text, who saves us. And therefore we must seek to learn all of Christ. If you believe, you are a child of God because you are saying, the text says that all who believe will be saved without facing up to the other texts of Scripture that clearly state that believers have certain characteristics that a believer, First John 1, loves light, that a believer 1 John 2 will obey Christ. That a believer will be cut from the world systems. 1 John 2. He will love the brethren. 1 John 2, 9 to 11. And then also chapter 4. That a believer will hate sin and practice righteousness. 1 John 3. If you say, I am a believer, While neglecting these texts,
1: then you are at great risk. Then you are saying
0: you may be an exception to the inclusive statement where the Lord says, not everyone, but the one who. Do I see in myself what God says will be the inevitable fruit of faith? For do I not? Am I approaching the day of judgment only saying because I believe I will enter heaven while neglecting that my life is not demonstrating fruit that is in keeping with repentance? When you assess yourself, and see lawlessness, when you see sin in your life, when you see unchanged lifestyle, and then conclude, these are just few problems. These are weaknesses, personal weaknesses. Instead of rightly seeing them for what they are, bondage to sin, then you are behaving like the Jews in John chapter 8. The Jews in John chapter 8 were saying, we are Abraham's children. And the Lord tells them, if you are truly so, then we would see you doing the works of Abraham. In John eight thirty-one, Scripture says, so Jesus said to the Jews, Who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What did the Jews do in verse 33? They answered him. Because they didn't like that aspect of being told you will be set free. Which implies you are under bondage. The Jews said in verse 33, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? In verse 34, Jesus answered them truly, truly, amen, amen, verily, verily, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And in verse 39 of the same text, he says, "They, when they answered him, Abraham is our father, but Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you'd be doing what Abraham did. If you're saying you're a child of God because you believe like Abraham believed, then we would see it in your conduct. We would see it in those words there of 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The same Bible that says in Ephesians two eight that by grace you have been saved through faith, says in verse 10 of the same Ephesians 2, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. These Jews who say they were not under bondage to sin end up crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of the sin that led them to that terrible uh, expression of sin, part of the problem was they had a false assurance of salvation. We must not be like them. Resting in the thinking that since believers are saved and I believe, therefore I am saved, while neglecting the acid tests for a fruit of salvation that are presented clearly in the Bible is a very dangerous thing. That common thinking of, I remember that day when I walked down the aisle with all eyes closed around me, sneaked up the aisle. (laughs) And then the preacher prayed, and I prayed the preacher's prayer. And then the preacher told me, from this moment onwards, you are born again. Don't doubt it. Never ever doubt it. No matter what, always remember you are born again. And that's the thing
1: we cling to. I was saved. And the Lord, praise the
0: Lord, many are saved. That means that is extra-biblical. We must not do it because it's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible is a preacher asked to pray and to tell people to repeat the prayer after them. You point people to Christ and when somebody comes to you and says, I want to believe, tell him this is what you do. Go and cry out to the Lord. And he says, all who cry out to him, He would say cry out to him, he will save you. And don't leave that room. And you read scriptures and you pray, and you read scriptures and you pray together. It's not one prayer, brothers and sisters. And the Lord may mercifully save in this particular way, but we don't go about repeating a wrong method simply because God has mercifully uh, sidestepped our ignorance.
1: What I am saying is, don't cling to that.
0: You was saved. And yet when you look at your life right now, there are sins. There are sins after sins after sins, a practice of sinning. We all do sin to our shame. We all do sin to our embarrassment. But John is very clear in 1 John. If you make a practice of sinning, you are not a child of. And so, as Pastor Murungi was saying in the morning, some people ask you, I mean, they would, in the midst of so much sin, be saying, am I really a Christian? And they, they should, they should just stop and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to sanctify them and cleanse them and change them and do that which the Lord has prescribed as a means for overcoming sin because his word is able to sanctify us.
1: Failure to
0: perform the duty of seeking assurance as prescribed in scripture is dangerous. Your assurance must be based on a reflection in your life of what the Bible says a Christian really is.
1: For some of us, our
0: inability after so many years of professing to be saved, our inability to answer this question, tell me five, even three, tell me three things that are true of every Christian. Our inability to answer that question makes me very scared for you. It should concern you. The Bible is full of these truths everywhere. But since we are not acquainted with the scriptures, perhaps, we cannot answer the question, even after many years of professing that we are believers. What distinguishes a believer from a unbeliever? What would be the irreducible minimums that mark out a human being who is a true believer? from another human being who is not. We need to ask ourselves. And if those things are not in our lives, we need to be concerned because we may be in La La Land about to wake up on exam day, an exam that does not provide for a receipt. Second thing that leads to this problem, this Sad situation of arriving at judgment seat without with with a sense of with self-deception or unconscious hypocrisy is a failure to perform the duty of self-assessment or self-examination. Scripture establishes this duty. It does it implicitly, as I've read before from those verses, where, wherever there is a command, do not be deceived. That command, do not be deceived, also comes with a command, ensure you assess yourself continuously. If I told you, please be careful not to receive a fake $1,000 note, Well, 1,000 shilling note, sorry. What do you generally do? Every time you receive a thousand bob, you are looking for UV lights, isn't it? How come? I just told you don't receive a fake one thousand shilling, but you are now, the natural thing is to start assessing if this one thousand shilling note is legit or counterfeit. So a command: do not be deceived or be not deceived. Deceived, though stated in the negative, is likewise a positive. Command from the Lord to ensure you are assessing, you are inspecting. Do not be deceived means inspect, assess. When one says he does not need to examine himself, then he may be walking on dangerous grounds. And Scripture calls us explicitly to examine ourselves, to assess ourselves 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, it goes on to say.
1: 2 Peter
0: 1.10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure each one of us has this reality. We are eternity bound. We can be in church for many, many years and sadly never be called, called to examine ourselves. It's a terrible thing that's happening in many churches. And our church is not perfect. By a long shot, we have so much growth to make as pastors here, we see so much room for growth and improvement in our lives. But I thank God. While aware, keenly aware of our weaknesses, I thank God that in this setup He has been pleased to grant that by His grace we are constantly being called and calling one another to self examine
1: ourselves
0: to live that life where we say oh father you say that those who are born of God love the brethren lord do I love the brethren do I love the brethren oh father you say that those who are born again do not make a practice of sin Lord do I make a practice of sin? Is my face turned away from evil and focused on Christ and his righteousness? Hopefully this is a set up, setting where you, you will hear yourself making those prayers. Oh Father, you say that he is born of God, loves him who is begotten of God. Oh Lord, do I do so.
1: Do you neglect
0: the command to examine yourself? Because if you do so, you are committing a criminal act against your soul. It is a criminal act against your soul not to examine yourself. How could so many people arrive at the judgment day so deluded? People who have been so outstanding that they have been elevated to places of leadership how could this happen perhaps they thought of themselves as being too big for the duty of self-examination after all i'm the manager at my workplace that's left for my constituents. After all, I'm a pastor. After all, I'm, I'm the one who teaches family worship here. After all, I sing so well. Can we continue to play around with our souls like this? Why do people fail to do this? Well, maybe let's come to our day-to-day life. You have medical insurance that provides for you to have An annual body check, okay? Let me knock at your doorstep. Why do you fail to go for that annual body checker, free annual body checker that you have now that there is a medical insurance cover, or your employer is providing for it, or there is even a medical camp going around saying, hey, we have x-rays this time. Come, we check your chests. There is TB going around. Why do people fail to take up that? Ignorance, they didn't know, they they didn't read the policy document perhaps, isn't it? Ignorance can be a reason. I just didn't know that that was a privilege I have. I didn't know that NHIF provides for me to have that option. Another one could be carelessness. You know it and you say, I'll, I'll go, I'll plan to go, I'll plan to go. And then before you know it, the window for having that free check elapses. But then there could just be deliberate refusal to go. Perhaps you've, you've seen yourself, some things in your body behaving in a particular way, and you're thinking, hey, I might go, and they might just confirm the truth about me, so ignorance is bliss, let me live blissfully, let me just bury my head in the sand. I'm afraid if I examine myself spiritually, I might just realize, maybe I'm not a Christian. Therefore, let me just not be embarrassed, because what we like? What we like about the church? I stood before them and said, I'm born again. And they even voted to say, yes, we see, we agree with you. To say I'm not, I mean, to say, what, what will I even tell my children when I'm being baptized and I've been the pastor? How, how will I handle that? You, you, see, you see that fear? It just gets you to a place where you decide, let me just, let me just be happy. Let me not examine myself. Because to think about the possibility of standing here on the second Sunday of September while everybody else has thought I'm a Christian to now say I'm become a Christian leaves you morbid. You'd rather live that life of secret sin until the day of judgment. You don't want to to make people shocked or
1: sad. Let's not be that.
0: Let's not be this kind of people. In light of your never dying soul, I plead with you. Don't cherish your pride to the point of destroying your soul. Don't elevate your status to the point of neglecting your soul. It is better to destroy your hope right now than to see your soul destroyed hereafter. If you have been having a suspicion based on the fact that your expression of faith does not match up with your confession of faith, you need to do business with the Lord. When you go back home today, as I said last time, please don't jump on the TV clicker as if it is going to run away. It's a good to go to a room with the Bible. And pray and seek the Lord's face. He is there and he's saying, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. Don't reject the light and embrace darkness. A day is coming and each one of us is eternity bound and a day is coming for, for you and for me. When we will meet with individually meet with, the one whose eyes are like the flaming fire, eyes that are brighter than the sun at its very best. And in light of that must have, must keep appointment. Dear friends, it is better. It is better that you are temporarily ugly in our eyes and permanently beautiful in the sight of God than for you to be temporarily beautiful in our eyes and to remain permanently ugly in the sight of God. Please do business with the Lord. Each one of us, your position notwithstanding, your giftings notwithstanding, your confession notwithstanding must examine him or herself as a continuous thing, as a thing that you do in the words of Peter, diligently diligently, make your calling and your election sure. The final thing that I think leads people to this state of self-deception is resting on our religious activity. Seems like many will be will arrive at the judgment seat self deceived on the last day because they rested too heavily on religious activity. These people listed in Matthew seven twenty two are those who cast out demons and he cast out demons without casting themselves upon Christ as helpless needy sinners who need the Lord to save them those who are truly saved will always seek to serve God and so this is not a call for you to stop serving God and to stop serving God zealously 1st Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 The scriptures would tell us concerning the Thessalonian Christians that they report on them is that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living God. We become slaves of God once we are freed from being slaves of sin and Satan, Romans 6:22, likewise say the same. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Part and parcel of a genuine conversion is that people who turn away from serving idols to serving the living God. And we've already referred to Ephesians 2.10 that tells us we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Titus 2.14 would tell us that Christ has redeemed for himself a people who are zealous for good works. So the first principle, all who are truly saved will seek to serve the Lord, is a true biblical principle. But that principle, who all who are truly saved will seek to serve the Lord, must be balanced by a second principle. The second principle is this, not all who apparently serve the Lord are truly saved. Not all who outwardly serve the Lord are truly saved. All who are truly saved will have a heart to serve God but not all who outwardly serve God, are truly saved. These people spoken of in Matthew 7.22, performed a service rested, that was rested upon a doctrinal foundation. These were people who would say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in the name of climate change? in the name of improving humanity?
1: Did we not prophesy in
0: your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wondrous works, mighty works in your name? These were people who recognized in the carpenter of Nazareth the reality of God incarnate. They saw in Jesus Christ, both true humanity and eternal deity, together. And in the name of the God-man, they prophesy. They saw demons being cast out. In that name, they saw many supernatural signs being done in the name of Jesus Christ. They are not liberals. They're not serving merely for the betterment of humanity. We want a nice church environment. Therefore, I'll be wiping the seats. No, I honor this place because I'm doing this in the name of the Lord. I'll wipe seats. I want to sing excellently as unto the Lord. It's not just to entertain people. I want to cook tasty tea for tea plot because I want to honor the Lord. It's not just betterment of humanity or protecting us from climate change.
1: They had a proper doctrinal foundation. And their service was marked by supernatural power. And
0: it was an abundant amount of service. Many... Are they talking about many mighty works in your name? This notwithstanding, the Lord says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Friends, it is possible to serve in the name of Christ with a proper doctrinal foundation even with some evidence of supernatural blessing. And on the last
1: day, still be told, depart from me. The Lord says, many will hear these sad words. That begs the question then, why do people serve in the name of Christ? For some people, it's because of a
0: sad conscience. Come just sit here and people are a serving. Last week I just I was served via tip, Lot. Surely I can't just sit here and be served and I'm feeling guilty, I didn't do something last time, or I'm feeling guilty, I didn't give last time, or I'm feeling guilty uh, because I know I lived a sinful life during the week. Therefore, I'm going to overcompensate in church. I'm going to pass out more gospel tracts to
1: sort of cover for my life of sin. Confronted in
0: our conscience by the reality of sin, it is very possible that instead of repenting, we prime up the pump of religious activity. Pick more gospel tracts.
1: Serve more in our kitchen. Sing more immaculately. They need to stop because I was going to say I preach longer. We need to be careful
0: not to be led into serving with that motivation. How about the praise of men? We saw this in, in in Matthew six, the Lord warning us. Because whenever there is this privilege of supernatural blessing, there's a tendency for human beings to worship the instrument through which the supernatural blessing is being conveyed.
1: And the panel heart delights in the praises of men and will keep serving. That could be another reason why unregenerate people may serve the praise of men. Let me
0: ask a question. If from your life, if from my life, the opportunity to do these activities were removed, Okay, so you can't come to church next Sunday. You therefore can't book tea. You therefore can't sing. You therefore can't preach as I'm doing. You therefore can't be at the visitor's table. If these opportunities for service were removed from us, how would your Sunday
1: look? Would you even look for your Bible? Would you have time with the Lord and sing a hymn and read the scriptures if there is no opportunity for public service. does that might tell you why you are serving. When providentially you are unable to be here, does the Sabbath principle go off the window for you? Is it only
0: Sabbath, the Lord's Day when Other human beings can see you. Or is it the Lord's Day no matter what? Because that might be something that could help us check ourselves and assess why are we sad? Why are we sad? And yes, there is a place for human brothers and sisters to spur one another and to love and good deeds. And so I'm not saying there is no place for that mutual encouragement. Iron sharpens iron. There is a place for that. But what I'm asking is, when those activities are stripped away, how are you? Who are you?
1: Outside the four walls of this church? Do you only worship here? Do you also worship alone?
0: Do you have prayer vigils alone? Or it's got to be a group it's got to be a corporate Kesha for the Kesha to happen. It's got to be public reading of scriptures for the reading of scriptures to happen.
1: These people worked wonders that their holiness did not go further than their religious
0: activities. Think about Paul in Acts 16.25. five. They've been trying to preach in Philippi. They've cast out demons out of this girl who was saying this is a, these are servants of God, listen to them. They've been beaten up and chained in prison. There's no opportunity to preach. I mean in terms apart from to the fellow prisoners and to, to the guards. It's at midnight. These people decide to worship. That challenges us, isn't it? At 1625, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Their private life was one marked by a lifestyle of worship. It was not just a matter of outside activities. Even though outside activities had ceased, their relationship with Christ continued to burn on with a mighty flame. There's also the tendency to refuse to take up the whole counsel of God in this particular area of activities. And time fails me to explain that in depth. But this is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16 concerning the writings of Paul. He says, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them, this matters, there are some things in them, in the letters of Paul, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures.
1: So how you handle scriptures can lead to your destruction. Let me put it this way, sodium can harm you, chlorine can harm you, but when you put sodium and chloride
0: together and you have sodium chloride, it's a useful ingredient and we use it in our food every day. And there is that reality that we need to recognize with regards to Scripture. Just taking one section while neglecting another can do you serious damage. If you only cling to the law while neglecting the, the grace and mercy of the Lord, you may be destroyed. And if you only embrace the grace of God while neglecting His holiness, Likewise, you're setting yourself up for destruction. It's like going to take a packet of medicine and seeing there is potassium, calcium, and these things, and deciding I'm also going to mix these ingredients, then I'll take. If you don't know the proportions in which they are mixed, you'll end up with poison. And so we must, we must ensure we are taking in the whole counsel of God. And, and Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 26 to 27, tells the Ephesian leaders, Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of God. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul is saying, On judgment day, there's no blood on my hand. Your blood is not on my hand because I gave you the whole counsel of God. Implication. If I failed to give you the whole counsel of God, you would be destroyed and your blood would be on my hand. And I think what a preacher can do to others, we can do to ourselves. By neglecting to embrace the whole counsel of God, we set up ourselves for a situation where the blood of our own souls will be
1: on our hands. Let's remember that the
0: important thing is to have a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. To be able to say with Paul
1: in Philippians 3
0: that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, verse 10. I press on, verse 14, toward the goal of the prize of the upward
1: calling in Christ Jesus. Let us be those who
0: pursue a deep relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, where he knows us and enables us to truly know him. May the Lord protect us. May the Lord help us to steer away from these three reasons that could lead to a situation where we uh, end up arriving at the judgment seat of Christ, self-deluded.
1: Let us pray. Oh Lord, as we
0: began at the As we prayed at the start of this service, we once more pray now. Search us, O Lord. Search us and reveal any anxious thoughts, reveal sins, that we may repent, that we may put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you may lead us to the way
1: everlasting. Please protect us from cheapening our souls What we have are souls that will never die. Please help us not to glibly say, I am a Christian without
0: assessing whether we truly are Christians. Help us to see if our assurance of salvation is based on your word. Strengthen us to examine ourselves continuously,
1: as a discipline. And as we serve
0: you, O Lord, help us not to over rely on religious activity that is devoid of a re- relationship, a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the blessing of having many who fellowship here, who we we thank you, rather, for the blessing of having many who attend consistently worship here. Oh Lord, we thank you so
1: much that they come. We please, however, pray that attendance for the worship services would
0: not be confused with having a relationship with you. They've already come so far, O Lord. Kindly grant that they would not go back empty. Show them the door, the narrow door. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ. And whisper in their hearts, enter by the narrow gate. Grant that by your irresistible grace, all your banished ones would be brought into your shipfold. Lord, you who has begun this good
1: work in us, who is faithful
0: to bring it to accomplishment, remain our confidence. We look at ourselves, and if our salvation relied an iota on us, then we know we could lose our salvation. But because it depends on you from start to finish, we rest on you our shield, and our defender. Please pray, O Lord, that you'd enable us to live lives that honor you, lives that glorify your name. And now, Lord, we pray for your blessing, even as we sing the closing hymn. In Jesus' name, Amen.